This morning, we're going to be looking at, um, at, the, at the bridal paradigm. And, um, and so when we, when we look at God's Word, um, we see that there are, there are many ways that we can understand the kingdom of God and um, God's relationship to us. And a, a paradigm is basically just like a framework or a um, concept that we use to understand reality. And so when you look at when you look at God's word, you see that um, there are many different paradigms. So there are like agricultural paradigms where Jesus says that um, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. That's an agricultural paradigm. Another one is, is that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So very, very small, tiny seed. But once you sow it, it grows up into this massive tree. Or he says that the, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer that goes and scatters seed. And he goes to bed and he wakes up the next morning. And then he sees that, um, that the seed has grown into these, these um, great plants. So these are agricultural paradigms. They're analogies that Jesus gives us to help us get a grasp on the realities of the kingdom. Um, there are economical paradigms. So Jesus will say that the kingdom of heaven heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Or he says that uh, make sure that you don't store up your treasures here on earth, but you go and store up your treasures in heaven. That's an economical paradigm. Or we've got um, economic, or um, uh, sorry, military paradigms where um, our our relationship to God and our relationship to the enemy is described as us being soldiers serving the, the um, king who's going into war, and we are fighting the spiritual warfare against these principalities and these powers and authorities. Once again, analogies that are used to help you and I grasp the reality. Now, the, the bridal paradigm is one of those as well. And you ask the question, well, what is this bridal paradigm? Well, at the heart of it, it's this idea that God loves us very deeply, that He wants to be very intimate with us in relationship, and that He wants us to reign together with Him for all eternity. Um, so think of, you know, like the, the, the classic Disney story where you've, um, where you've got this um, princess or you've, you've um, got this lady that's in, that's in distress and you've got this handsome king and, um, and he decides that he's going to go and rescue the lady and he's going to bring her back to his own kingdom and he's going to make her the queen with him and then she will join with him in ruling over his kingdom. Um, so that idea right there, you know, that like, it's like at the heart of every Disney story or at the heart of so many stories that as children they just fall in love with or even if you think about like most Hollywood stories that are romance stories, it's, it's something of the same sort of thing. Um, but that's basically what's going on here with the, with the bridal paradigm. It's this idea that God loves us, that God wants to be in an intimate relationship with us, that He wants to bring us into His kingdom as His church, and then He wants to, us to be the queen that rules with Him, rules and reigns with Him as a co-heir over all of His creation. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? You can, you can, you can say amen. You have permission to say Amen. Poor, poor Jeannie had to ask me for permission last week. She's allowed to say amen here in the church. And um, she says she doesn't want to stick out. So now let it be publicly announced to everyone. You have permission to say amen. You can throw in a hallelujah. You can throw in a, a glory. Um, whatever you want to throw in to testify. Because God is good and this truth is exciting. And I want to hear you guys joining in in worship even in the middle of the sermon. Um, thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so, this, so this, this paradigm is incredibly important, and it is incredibly powerful. 
Now, you can actually see it all throughout Scripture. And what I'd like for us to do is actually just work our way through a whole stack of passages that talk about God being as our husband and we being as his bride or being as his wife. So um, the first place I want us to go is to the prophets, Isaiah chapter 54, 54, verse 5 to verse 6. It says, Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you. Like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3 to verse 5, says, You will be a glorious crown in the Lord's hand and a royal diadem in the palm of your God's hand. You will no longer be called deserted and your land will not be called desolate. I love this line. Pay attention to this line. It says, Instead, you will be called, My delight is in her. How good is that? You will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land will be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Amen. Hosea <laughs> um, chapter 2, verse 18 to verse 20. It says, On that day I will make a covenant for them. With the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground, I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land, and will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever, and I will, uh, I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. So that's some of the Old Testament prophets there. Now, John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, he was getting this download from God as well by the, by the Spirit. Of course, he knew the Old Testament, um, um, what the Old Testament had to say in these prophecies about it, but he testified to it as well. John chapter 3, verse 29, he says, He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So he's saying, guys, I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man. Um, I'm, don't, don't get me mistaken with the, with the groom. There is the, the groom that is coming, and the bride belongs to him. And now that he's here, my joy is complete. So I'm going to step out of the picture, and I'm going to let him rise up into the, into, to the spotlight. Then there's Jesus himself. So Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus said, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? So that's talking about him walking amongst his disciples on the earth. And he says, The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Matthew um, chapter 22, verse 2, Jesus describes the kingdom like his father arranging a marriage for him. So he says, Matthew chapter 22, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. And then we are invited to be a part of this wedding banquet. And then we've got Matthew 25, verse 1. It says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. So there's Jesus talking about himself as being the groom. It's him pointing to this bridal paradigm. And then we've got the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. He says, For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And then verse 32 of that same chapter, he says, This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
And then the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, has this, this vision where he gets this picture of what it's going to be like in the future um, when we dwell eternally with, with um, God. The, gold, um, the um, great unfolding of God's plan of redemption as he completes it here in the earth. And what he sees in this picture is Revelation 21 verse 9. He says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me and says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then 22 verse 17 says, Both the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely. So there, Revelation chapter 2 verse 17, one of the final things that is spoken of in, in all the Bible, the final picture that we actually have of the church is that of a bride. Is that the bride, along with the Spirit, is crying out for the groom to come. Jesus pointed to this as well. Earlier on in Matthew, said that now's not the time for fasting, but when I go, then you will fast, and then you're going to pray, and you're going to cry out for the groom to come. So as we look at all of this, like what does this, what does this tell us about God and how He relates to us? Well, the first thing that we can conclude about this picture, this, 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 this bridal paradigm, is that God is incredibly passionate about us. Incredibly passionate about us. He loves us with the fearless, all-consuming, unrelenting, passionate, deeply emotional love of a lover. Now, there's, 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 of course, there's nothing sexual to this love. But even the picture, the, 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 the picture of sexuality that exists within a marriage is a picture of two people longing to know one another in an incredibly deep and intimate way. And so in God's Word, what we're told is there is this mystery, this relationship between Christ and the church, and God wants to know you incredibly deeply, and He wants you in return to know Him very deeply. This is exciting news, isn't it? That God pursues us with that type of unrelenting love. So the Bible could have just left it at picturing us as being God's eternal slaves, so that God brings us into his kingdom, and then he sets us up as his servants and slaves. And what a privilege that is to be his servant and slave, because it definitely beats being the devil's servant and slave. So God could have left it there. That is good, but he, but he didn't leave it there. He um, could have left it at saying, hey, I want you to be my partners. I want you to end, uh, enter into this incredible privilege of partnering with me in accomplishing my purposes in all the earth. And he could have given you gifts and, and blessings and anointing and said, now you will partner with me and accomplish these things like a work colleague. That is awesome. That is amazing. Once again, it sure beats being the devil's work colleague. But God doesn't leave it there. He blesses us in that way, but he gives us more. He brings us into friendship. He says, I want you to be my friend, like the best of friends. I'll walk with you in your times of weakness. I'll carry your burdens with you. You'll be able to, to, um, to um, cast all of your cares upon me because I'm going to care for you. I will be the best of friends to you. That is incredibly good. But he doesn't leave it there. He takes it another step up. and says, more than you just being my servant, more than you being a work colleague, more than you being a friend, I want you to be my bride. The most intimate picture of union that we have on the face of the earth, God says, that is what I want with you. So know here this morning that God sees your brokenness. He sees your sin. He sees the things that you've done in the past. He sees the desires in your heart that are off. And none of that changes his commitment to you. 
He still looks at you and says, I want you to be as my bride. I want you to know me intimately. This is incredibly, incredibly good news for us as, as um, the people of God. So where does, where does all this begin then? So God loves us with this incredible love, but what, is that, what does that lead to then? Well, it leads to the marriage covenant. So just like a marriage for us between a man and a wife begins with a covenant, so does our marriage to, to Jesus. So the final covenant that God entered into in the Bible is the one where he makes this covenant with us through Jesus Christ. And it's called the new covenant. So God enters into this with these relationships with um, people um, all, throughout the, um, um, all throughout the Bible. He makes these covenants with them. But the last and most glorious one that we see is the, the, the picture of the, or is the, is the new covenant. And the, one of the pictures that we have of this is the picture of a marriage covenant. Tim, did you have the slides handy there for this? You got them? They're up? Oh, there we go. Look at that. Look at that. Um, so now in the, in the ancient Jewish culture, um, the process of entering into a covenant didn't quite take place the same way that it, that it does today. So when Jesse and I got married, um, is she here? No, she's wagging church. Um, no, she's probably with the kids or something. Um, oh, there she is. She's in the mother's room. I can spot her through here. How good is that a mother's room that you can see into? <laughs> Wasn't supposed to be that way. <laughs> um, and um, look, she, she knows I'm looking at, talking about her now. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, so for us, um, before we entered into the covenant of marriage, you know, you normally start by dating. And, um, and so we were dating for, for, for two years. Um, she was living up on the Sunshine Coast. I was living up here in Brisbane. On the weekends, we would go and see one another. Um, and so we had this period of dating. And that, that's pretty common in the West. With this period where you sort of get to know one another to decide whether this person is going to be a suitable partner to get married to. At least that's what it should be. Um, um, it's all sorts of other things, really. But that's the, that's the idea behind it. Um, then that leads to the process of getting engaged. So Jesse and I got engaged one night at Point Cartwright up in the Sunshine Coast, um, sang a song to her and got down on one knee and it was very romantic and I asked her to please be my wife and she said yes. And, um, and then that set in place this process of about a year of being engaged where you then prepare to get married, but really it's like you're trying to get everything in order, so we both had to finish off with our, with our degrees at uni, I was at Bible college, she was studying nursing, and then you try and get, figure out where you're going to live, and how you're going to start this new life with one another, that's the engagement process which I hated, oh, it was the worst process of getting ready for marriage, I was just like, I wish this could be over and done with, any other husbands relate to that, yeah, oh my goodness, um, yeah, um, but we got married, and, um, and then, then, you, then you start your life with one another. You become one flesh, as the Bible describes it. Um, and that happens when you make your vows to one another. You then enter into sexual union with one another, which is the becoming of one flesh. And then you start living a life with each other. Um, and so that's, that's basically how it works in the West. But the way that it worked in the ancient Hebrew culture wasn't, wasn't the same. So they, they didn't have this, this dating period that we have. Um, quite often your parents would just organize it for you. Or maybe you would be able to, as, more so as the husband, you'd be able to, to pick someone for yourself. Um, 
but you'd find someone suitable and then you would make a covenant. So where we have the engagement part, where it's like more like an informal agreement, but there's like still a door out really. Like it's not divorce if you break off the engagement. In the Jewish context, you would enter into a, a, um, a covenant, which is like started this period of betrothal. And, um, and so this would last from anywhere to about one to two years. And then you would, um, after that, go and get married. And then the marriage, once again, you'd make a covenant with one another. You'd enter into sexual union, and then you'd start a life with, with one another. But that's the, the Hebrew idea behind it. And it's really important for us to understand that because that overlaps into the way that we relate to Jesus here and now and both into the future. So I'll unpack that a little bit more. But the first thing I want you to notice, excuse me, is that everything kicks off with a covenant. That's where it starts. Jesus makes this pledge to us, this covenantal commitment to us, that he will love us, that he will be loyal to us, that he will be faithful to us, that he won't change. Liesl just testified to it this, this morning for us, how God doesn't change. He doesn't waver. He is the same. And that's what God does is he comes to us and says, I will make this covenant with you that I will be committed to loving you as a groom is supposed to love his bride. And the way that Jesus makes that covenant commitment to us, the sign of it is in the offering up of his life upon the cross. So in Luke chapter, chapter 22, verse 20, it says, In the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now that's a pretty awesome way to begin with making a covenant to someone. It says, I'm going to begin by making a covenant to you by dying for you. I'm very thankful that's not how marriages work, right? But it's a pretty significant sign of how committed you are to the person. In Jesus' context, of course, he comes back to life, so whew, our spouse is still here, he's still around, but he says, this is my pledge to you, this is my commitment to you, this is how much I will love you for all eternity, here is my very life offered up for you, and I will never love you less than that. I will always, for all eternity, lay down my life in selfless service for you. And there's, there's, there's even this passage where Jesus describes how there will be the servants that are waiting for the master's return. And it says that they're waiting, looking for him, waiting, looking for him. And then the master comes back. And you'd expect that the passage says that the that them servants then got down and started serving the master. But the passage says that the master came back and he knelt down and started serving the servants. He says that's a picture of Jesus. The love that he demonstrated for you on the cross is the pledge of his covenantal commitment to you. And that's never changing. He will always selflessly bless you and serve you and build you up and be there to support you and strengthen you. He is the ultimate groom. And now what happens is that Jesus makes his covenant pledge to anyone that would be his bride. Come into this, and there's some spiritual um, group of people that exist as his bride. But the invitation that he gives for us in return is also the offering up of our lives. And I believe this is part of the idea behind baptism. So Jesus comes and he lays down his life for us as a pledge of his covenantal commitment. And then he says, now enter into the waters of baptism where you will die with me and rise to new life. And so when you enter into the waters of baptism, this is part of why baptism is so incredibly powerful and it's way more than a sign and a symbol. Is that when you enter into those waters of baptism, you're making your covenantal pledge to God and saying, just as you laid down your life for me, I will now lay down my life for you. And there you have the beautiful picture of what a marriage is supposed to be. A groom selflessly laying down his life for his bride and a bride selflessly laying down her life for her groom. 
It's beautiful, isn't it? So there's a song that that reminds me of. Anyone else here just like loves, you love pulling up songs and just like reading through the lyrics and like contemplating them. I know Brinbo's a fan here. We've sat around the fire just reading song lyrics to each other. My wife was there as well, so it wasn't anything creepy. <laughs> um, but um, I, I love it. I love it. I love it when you've got someone that's a good poet and, um, you know, and they've, they've wrapped that poetry in like awesome melodies. Um, but here's, um, if you haven't heard of Jess Ray before, I'd really encourage you to go and check out her music, Jess Ray. She's one of those people, just an incredible poet, but equally a good musician. Um, and she has a song that's called, What Have We Found Ourselves In? And the song's all about the parallel between our relationship with God and the relationship that a husband and wife share with one another. I just want to read you two stanzas from that, that song. Um, it, says, it says, you and I are reaching out over all our fear and all our doubt. Numbers, signs, and family lines, and I will have your hand in mine. Over Venus, beyond Mars, and up through all the shooting stars. Let's reach across the city streets from north and south until they meet in the story that we find ourselves in. What have we found ourselves in? Oh, how I have stumbled through the path I took to get to you. Be prepared to be surprised. Open my eyes when it was time. And you were standing strong and tall and unafraid to risk it all for the story we found ourselves in. What have we found ourselves in? She just, so she describes how her and her husband were willing to, like, across all their fear and across all their doubt and across all these worries and things, they were, they were willing to make this commitment to one another. And she describes how they, they, they traveled this path through life in order to, to arrive at one another and realize that they were meant for each other. And then she makes this, this statement that I love the most. She says, and you were standing strong and tall and unafraid to risk it all for the story that we found ourselves in. When I read that lyric for the first time, I was like, like fully choking up because I'm like, oh my goodness, that is such an incredibly beautiful description of what marriage is about. And not just what marriage is about, but what God's love for us is like. Is that it's like when you stand up, you know, on your wedding day and you look your spouse in the eyes, you are risking everything. Now, I don't think you realize this as a 19-year-old. You know, I think we were 21 when we got married. I don't think you really, really realize what you're, what you're getting into. Like in that moment, you're just like, oh, you're so amazing. You're so beautiful. Oh, my goodness. I just want to be with you. But you don't realize how much you're actually laying down in that moment. You know, you make these vows. Yeah, yeah, sickness and in health, yada, 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 to death do us part. You don't really realize what you're saying in that moment. <laughs> awesome so good <laughs> but what's so amazing is that with Jesus he knows the cost he sees it all and he knows that he would lay down his life and there's the possibility that you would not reciprocate the love that you might actually just take that love and throw it back in his face you might just turn against him and choose to continually live as a rebel. But nonetheless, he was unafraid to risk it all. Because how could he hold back when you are the one that he loves? And so he's willing to risk everything 
to have you as his own and then to love you no matter what. Isn't that beautiful? And so God makes this marriage covenant pledge to us is I will no matter what risk it all to have you as my own. And then he invites you and says, now will you in return give up your life for me so that we can together experience this glorious intimacy with one another. So that's the marriage covenant. But then that leads to the season of preparation or the, or the betrothal period. That's the, that's the next big one. And, um, and so, so once you've got a covenant that is established, a couple in the Hebrew context would, would enter into the season of betrothal, the season of preparation. Like I mentioned before, it's a period of time where essentially you take one to two years to prepare yourself for, for marriage. It's, it's a great idea, in my opinion. It sure beats like the whole engagement thing that we've got because it's actually about preparing yourself for being a bride or for being a groom. And so the, the, the groom would go away and yeah, he'd work on himself, but he would also go and prepare a place. So he would go and make some money. He'd get enough money saved up. He'd go and get a place ready for him and his bride to live together. And then the bride would go off and um, she would get trained. So within that control context, she'd probably be taught how to cook. She'd be taught how to make garments. She'd be taught how to manage a house really well. And then when the time was right, after one to two years, they would come together again. And then they would actually fully start their marriage with one another. So what's so interesting about this is that in one sense, they're already married because the covenant has already been made with one another, um, but they're not yet fully married. So that's actually what's going on with Joseph and Mary when Mary gets pregnant, um, when she conceives by the Holy Spirit. So they're married, but they're also not yet married because Mary's still a virgin. And so they're in this season of betrothal. They're in this season of preparation. Um, now, we as the church, in the, the, the epoch that we're in this very moment, the dispensation that we're in, I use that word cautiously, I'm not a dispensationalist, but it's a good word to describe this period of time that we're in, okay, is that we are in this season of betrothal. We are in this season of preparation. Christ has made the covenant. You have entered into the covenant with the, with the giving over of your own life to Him, and now you're in the season of preparation, awaiting the great marriage supper of the Lamb when you and I will fully be married to Jesus Christ. And so this is why in God's Word we are told that, that the bride, so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to verse 26, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the Word. Verse 27 he did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So this season that we are in is the season of preparation. We're already betrothed to Jesus. There's a sense in which we're married to him. But there's a sense in which we are now, because we are married and we're in the season of betrothal, we are being prepared. We are being made without spot and without wrinkle. We are being made holy as He is holy. We are being made blameless as, as He is blameless so that we could be suited for marriage. Paul says the same thing. As he, um, he gets at the same sort of idea in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. He says, For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. Now, don't get the idea wrong here. Say, okay, well, if you are a sinner, then you're not fit to get married to Jesus. No, that's, that's not the idea. The idea is that you are a sinner, but what he's doing now is purifying you. 
He's cleansing you. He's making you holy. He's making you blameless. He's teaching you how to rule with him as a co-heir over all creation. That's what he's busy teaching us in the season. And Jesus, we are told, is going ahead of us. John chapter 14, verse 2 to verse 3, says, My father's house and many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's that husband going and preparing a place for his future bride to come and to live with him. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that you may be where I am also. And so right now, your holiness and your purity and your devotion matters incredibly to God. Matters incredibly because God is this lover that is absolutely committed to you. And he is jealous for you to return that love to him. Not in a self-centered way, not in an egocentric way, not as this husband that is controlling and domineering and, and expects his wife to send him a text message every time she goes to the toilet or something like that. I've heard of husbands that are that controlling. They, they, their wives have to always be inside. They can't let them go anywhere without them knowing about it. That's not the idea. That's, that's ugly. That's not good. The love, the jealousy that Jesus has for us is that of a true selfless lover where he's committed in selfless love to you and for your good and for your beautification and for your exaltation and for you to experience what you were created for, he is jealous for you to share this love with him. And so holiness matters. It matters incredibly because at the heart of holiness, it's your commitment to the marriage. In the same way that a husband or wife would be heartbroken over a spouse cheating on them with someone else, the heart of God breaks over us when we give ourselves over to idols and give ourselves over to sin and give our, ourselves over to things that aren't pleasing to Him. And so understand this, when God beckons you into the place of holiness, it's because He loves you and He desires deep intimacy with you. And God is going to continue this this. this this, this work within his church. He's going to keep on doing it. He's going to keep on t purifying his bride and bringing her into greater and more fuller expressions of his glory. So Revelation chapter 19, this, this picture of when everything comes to an end. You see Revelation 19 verse 6 to verse 8 says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. The bride has prepared herself. She's ready to be married. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. We get this wrong in the church all the time. The righteousness that is spoken of here is not the forgiveness of your sins, even though you do get forgiven of your sins. The fine linen that's being spoken of here is not you being accepted by God, even though you are accepted by God. It's not God looking at you and seeing you as pure, even though he looks at you and in a sense sees you as pure. What is being spoken of here as the, as the fine linen, as the white garments, is the righteous act of the saints. It's our good works. It's us being transformed. It's us 
actually loving diligently. It's us. And the Bible says that this is the preparation, is the bride being made spotless and pure and without, without wrinkle, being prepared to stand before her groom and to be married to him for all eternity. This is why holiness matters. The, the, the great completion of God's redemptive plans in the earth is hinging upon you and I becoming a bride that is ready for his return. There's no point praying, Jesus come, Jesus come, Jesus come, Jesus come, but then we're carrying on living with our idols and committing adultery against our Lord. I genuinely believe that God is up to something really exciting in the earth at this moment. I genuinely believe it. He's, he's, he's speaking to us in so many different ways, putting things upon our heart about this great move of the Spirit that we are, we are on the brink of or we are in the early days of. I genuinely believe it. And I believe that what God is doing in the season is exactly that. More than ever before, we're going to see the virgins fill up their lamps with the oil that they need for the return of their groom. More than ever before, that's what's happening this very moment. God is relentlessly going to pour out the purification of his fire into his church. He's going to transform his bride and get her ready for the return of the Lord. He's doing it. It's necessary as well if we're going to be walking in the power that God has called us to walk in. It's a pure bride that is the one that is fit to reign with him. And as you reign with him, it's there that we experience his power. If we want to see the greater works that Jesus said we would see as a church, it is necessary for us to clean our hands and purify our hearts that he might exalt us to reign with him. We can already experience the foretaste of that glory here and now. Holiness matters so much to the Lord. And we see that in the season of betrothal, that as a, as a, as a groom would then enter into this betrothal, and he would, he would make this, this um, woman his wife, he would give her a, a um, down payment. He would give her a gift as a guarantee that he was going to come back for her. Some of you can already connect the dots, right? That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He goes to heaven, he gives us a gift, he says the gift is a down payment and a guarantee of the future inheritance, and I'm coming back for you, and we're told that down payment is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So we are not forgotten the groom is coming back for us. That's what the Holy Spirit is testifying to our hearts all the time. It's like, he's not forgetting you. He's coming back for you. He's coming back for you. Get yourself ready. He's coming back for you. It's not only that, though. The gift is more than a down payment. The gift is also a foretaste. Romans chapter 8, verse 23 says, not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. What's that? It's the foretaste. You're tasting the first fruits of the greater harvest, the Spirit at work within you. This very moment, you and I can experience this radical intimacy with our bridegroom through the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of that future communion that we're going to have with Him for all eternity. 
It's here. You can already experience it in part. We, we are already known by Him. We can already know Him as a foretaste of that future knowing. And then not only that, not only is the Holy Spirit here as a guarantee, not only is this, the Holy Spirit here as, as the foretaste, but the Holy Spirit is here to actually help us in our season of preparation. You know, you think of like, you think of like the bride the, that has her team of bridesmaids, you know, that gets her ready, that gets her ready for the, for the wedding. And I take my hat off to bridesmaids. I can't believe everything bridesmaids go through in order to make a wedding happen. So you've got this team of bridesmaids that is getting this, this bride ready for the day that she's going to get married. And they go shopping with her and help her to pick out jewelry and go to the spa together and all this sort of stuff to prepare for the day. In a sense, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing for us. Preparing the bride. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So he's helping us and getting us ready. And then lastly, we see that this all leads to the wedding and the, happy, the happily ever after. <laughs> all of that, the marriage covenant, the betrothal, the down payment, it's all leading to that moment we will be fully married with our groom and we'll be able to live with him and reign with him for all eternity. So Revelation chapter 19 Verse 8 to verse 9, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then later on in Revelation 22, verse 3 to verse 5, it says, And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. All of this, God's great plan of salvation is to bring us to this point where we'll be married to him for all eternity and we will reign with him. You will rule over the earth with God as a co-heir of Jesus Christ. We as the church will be like Jesus's, King Jesus' queen. And the decisions that he makes, he will make with us. And the things that he does, he will do those things with us. You will be able to experience intimacy unlike you've ever experienced with him for all eternity. You'll be able to co-labor with him in a way you've never labored with him before for all eternity. You will rule and reign with Jesus. And all along, this is what God has wanted. From the very beginning, this was his heart. When he put us in the Garden of Eden, he said, now eat from the tree of life. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go and tend to the garden. Go and extend the garden across the whole face of the earth until my glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. His plan was all along that through a relationship with him, i.e. eating from the tree of life, you and I would be enabled to rule and reign with him over all the earth so that his glorious character could be made manifest on every square inch. That was the plan all along. 
And now after this massive detour, God brings us back to that. At the cost of his own son, he brings us back to that. Gets us ready, and in the future, we will be joined with him and we will reign with him forever. And so just as we wrap things up this morning, I want to encourage you that God wants, He wants the commitment of your life. There's so much that He wants to show you, so much that He wants to do in you, such amazing ways that He wants to transform you. But He's inviting you and saying, come, will you give your life to me as I have given my life for you? It's a real invitation here. If you're not yet following Jesus, but also if you already are following Jesus, I want to encourage you, he's inviting you deeper. Return to your first love. Let him stoke that fire once again. Give yourself over to him once again and see how incredibly he will accept you. Lavish his blessings upon you. And the last thing I really want to highlight is that I want us to see that that God cares as a priority first for his relationship with you more than what he cares about the outcomes of that relationship. In other words, your ministry. In other words, the fruit that you can bear in your life. In other words, the people that you can lead to him and the people that you can disciple. What he cares for as a priority first and foremost is that relationship with you. Think about it like this. If fruit in your life is represented by children, where do children come from? It comes from marriage intimacy. Children are the happy result of marital intimacy. But if you get into a marriage only to have children, that's the only reason that you're pursuing marital intimacy. It's the only reason that, 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 that you committed yourself to this person. It's the only reason that, that you're sticking with them is so that you can have kids. Is that going to be a joyful, satisfying, heart-nourishing relationship to be in? No, but how many of us as Christians do this with Jesus all the time? Jesus, give me fruit. Jesus, bless my ministry. Jesus, use me for your name's sake. Jesus, give me fruit. Give me fruit. Give me fruit. You rock up to the prayer meeting, not because you adore him. You rock up to the prayer meeting because you want him to bless your ministry. You come to church not because you're infatuated with him. You come to church because you want something from him. Finances. A change in your social circumstances. I don't know. You want something from him. But God's saying, no. No, no, intimacy comes first. It's amazing, you know, he will be patient with you, coming to him for fruit and coming to him for blessings and coming to him for everything else. He'll be okay with it. At least you're coming to him. And he'll be patient. But in that process, what he's trying to bring you to is the maturity of realizing that all along, the greatest blessing that you could have had was not the money and not the ministry fruit, but it was him. And so as we grow into maturity as Christians, we need to learn to think this way. He's okay with giving us blessings. He's not angry at you because he's 
he has to give you blessings. He's a good dad. But in that process, he's trying to teach you that lesson that Asaph came to in Psalm 73. After he complains about the blessings that he's missing, he realizes that, hang on a second. All along, God, you are my true treasure. He says, God, who do I have in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you because you are the strength of my heart and you are my portion forever. That's the conclusion he comes to at the end of all this. He concludes that God will take care of me. I know he will. But besides that, I've come to realize by being in his presence that he is my true treasure. He is my true portion. He is the greatest thing that I could have in heaven or on the earth. And that's what God wants to bring you into is that maturity. You say, well, you're not just coming to me for forgiveness. You're not just coming to me for spiritual power. You're not just coming to me for spiritual fruit. You're coming to me as a priority to have intimacy with me. And then the fruit and the blessings can be the happy consequence of marital intimacy. Of you knowing him deeply and him knowing you deeply. Amen.